Hi, I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Kesha Podcasts. Hi, Jonathan. Hello there, Yonit. A difficult week since we last spoke, I feel. Indeed, uh, kind of a somber mood uh, settling over uh, Israel. Uh, We spoke, I think, last week after one uh, terror attack in Beersheba. Since then, it has become what looks like a new wave of terror uh, in uh, two other cities, uh, Khadira and and, and Nebrak. And, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting because for my generation, really, for the Israelis who are now in their either 30s or 40s, and who grew up um, really with the the, the, the uh, memory of mid '90s uh, uh, terror attacks for at least two years after the Oslo Accords, and then uh, uh, the Second Intifada, obviously between 2000 2005, and this feeling these are long years, right? This is a long period of time, which you kind of feel like you're scared to go on a bus, you're scared to go in a restaurant, you're scared to even walk in the street because there's suicide bombers who can uh, um, attack. And you, something in that trauma, and I remember we talked about this, you and I, and I was talking about the trauma of the Second Intifada, and you said to me, well, it's been 20 years. It's true, but the, the trauma lives in, in, in us, and, and it's so easy to sort of, sadly, easy to ignite that. Um, and the way in which you suddenly see these, these attacks in the heart of Israel, in the heart of Israeli cities, it's sort of surprising, having no uh, intelligence about them uh, beforehand, it kind of throws you back into that that feeling. And, you know, we're, we're already parents to children. And the last thing you want is for them to have the same fear that we lived with. So that was a very long answer to the question, how are you doing? Uh, yeah. But that is that is basically how, how we're doing these days. Yeah, I d- it doesn't surprise me because even when I was saying the thing about 20 years, I know how close below the surface it is. And I was speaking to somebody in Israeli this week who said, you know, straight away, the message came, I think, from her mum, who said, you know, you're not getting on a bus anytime soon. Like, even though, you know, these weren't directly of that kind, it's the absolute sort of instinct muscle memory, which kicks in. Um, And and I remember just last week, we were saying, and I, you know, you asked, I think, how last week's attack had played in the international media. And I said, well, you know, not really. I mean, it hasn't. It hasn't got much attention. And that's because, I said, I thought journalists were waiting to see if it was part of a trend. That, you know, when you and I spoke last week, there was had just been one. Yep. And the kind of rather ghoulish media expectation or, or um, hesitation is, well, let's wait and see. And I w- was feeling that, and I don't think anybody thought it would come so quickly. The idea that yep. in the space of just those few days, we're now talking about, as you and I speak, three you know, um, so that is, uh, we are now dealing, as you say, with, in journalistic terms, a trend, in terror terms, a wave. Yep. And that, and- um, uh, you know, is bound to trigger all those associations. And it's amazing how quick they come back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I kind of feel the need to to quickly say, after what I kind of said in the introduction, this isn't the second intifada, right? What we're seeing, and this is the good news, we're not seeing the Palestinian population en masse taking part in this, right? What you saw in the Second Intifada was hundreds and even thousands of Palestinians ready to become suicide bombers. What you saw then was the, the Palestinian leadership actively promoting this. This is not the case now. The Palestinian population as a whole is not part of this uh, uh, terror organization. The leadership for sure isn't. Um, but 
But you feel what you do have now, which is more dangerous than you had then, and we talked about this last week, is the fact that everything is being photographed. Every There's a camera at every corner. Can't, cell phones are, are, are available to everyone. And so the Israeli public, again, not on the evening news because everything is censored there, but yes, in social media for sure, is saying, seeing up close the monstrosity of what it means for someone to murder someone else with a knife, what it means for a terrorist to, sh- again, I'm not trying to be too graphic here, but to shoot someone at the closest range possible. These pictures are being distributed. And what happens with that is that Israelis are viscerally reacting, right? If if you still were talking about lofty ideas about peace and, you know, things like that, Israelis were thinking, you know, you want me to make peace with these people? Like, that is an impossible thing, thing to fathom. The other thing that is going around here, and that is, it has to do a lot with politics, because in this country, everything is politics. There's a, still a large chunk of the population that is saying to themselves, Netanyahu would have dealt with this better. Or... This wouldn't have happened under Netanyahu. And of course, for a fact, we went through another uh, period called the the Knives Intifada around 2015, where 47 Israelis were killed. It didn't look like this. You didn't have that fear in the middle of Israel, the heart of Israeli cities. But Netanyahu had this period. He also, and I have to say, if you look at just the raw data, right, the first decade between 2000 and 2009 until it comes to office, there are 1,150 Israelis killed in terror attacks. And the next decade, when he is in office, you have 161 Israelis killed in terror attacks. If you're looking for that question, why did Israelis keep on voting for him? That data is terribly important. Now, of course, there are a lot of things that assisted Netanyahu in that, and that is the Shin Bet on the Israeli side and the, and the Palestinian forces fighting terror. But that is important to remember when you look at the fact that the prime minister right now is, has been prime minister for nine months, and his legitimacy was from the outset uh, in question, that is not helping him very much. All of which makes good sense of our very special guest this week, because he is actually the one person, or one of very few people, who's ever beaten Netanyahu in an election, which he did in 1999. Yoni, why don't you introduce our guest for this week's podcast? Ehud Barak is uh, Israel's former prime minister, defense minister, chief of staff. He's Israel's most decorated soldier, and uh, no one is better equipped than him to talk about this week's wave of terror, foreign ministers summit, the Iran deal, Israel's stance vis-a-vis the crisis in uh, Ukraine. We have so much to talk about, and we're so delighted that you're here with us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Obviously, we, we want to uh, talk uh, on what is top of the agenda here in Israel, and that is uh, uh, the terror attacks, 11 deaths in one week. Not as organized, obviously, as the second intifada that uh, started when you were prime minister. But does it in any way seem to you that Israel might be facing a third intifada? Um, I cannot predict it, but it's clear that uh, 11 uh, people killed in one week as a result of terrorist attacks, some of them initiated by Israeli Arabs, however, a small minority of them, but some of them are, some of them are really active in, in these kind of operations. It is an emergency situation which needs emergency steps, a crash program to strengthen, to show an iron fist against violence from any possible uh, direction. I think that a, a small kind of uh, team of uh, senior ministers with senior heads of the uh, law enforcement agency, the, the police, even the Secret Service and, and provisionally or temporarily even the IDF should be brought together to mobilize thousands, probably more than 5,000 of new uh, policemen. And if it takes time uh, to, to make a new police force or a new 
civil armed uh, guard. Uh, if there is a need, uh, let's use the reservist of the IDF. And uh, there is a need to aggressively enforce through the police and the courts, uh, probably with minimum penalties, using the old emergency laws that we inherited from the British mandate and which are still in force in Israel and um, carry out whatever needed, either administrative mm-hmm. arrests of uh, individual or preemptive strike on sources of terror. You know, the Arab population in Israel, most of them, 99.9% are innocent citizens looking for better education, better uh, style of living, a better future for for next generation. At the same time, we have to block aggressively any kind of private revenge groups that emerge in the Israeli uh, Jewish landscape and the uh, vigilance, whether for genuine rage or for political uh, uh, reasons. And all this is just the tip of the iceberg. The essence that what we really need is action, is deeds, not just words. And Israel is strong. Israel will overcome this wave of terror the same way that we um, defeated the, the previous ones. But it mm-hmm. will go through a certain uh, tougher period. I hope and believe it should not develop during this Ramadan out of this um, mm-hmm. kind of provocative climbing to the Temple Mount of some uh, hyper right-winger uh, politicians. But, but, but if these, sorry to interrupt, if these attacks are born of sentiment and feeling, including or inside Arab citizens of Israel, people who haven't spoken to other people, who are just, as it were, inspired to copy what they've seen, what help can all those security measures you've just described, increasing you know, the presence of IDF or police, what can they do to get inside the mind or heart of someone who grabs a kitchen knife from their own home surely all the full panoply of armory of the state is powerless against that kind of sentiment and it's that sentiment that you're up against surely no the sentiment might be in the hearts and minds of of individuals uh, but uh, you cannot penetrate the mind you cannot you can penetrate uh, by uh, clever use of intelligence their intentions their activity on social network they contact with others, and sometimes uh, we are really surprised if it's just uh, one individual that uh, initiates. But there is certain deterring element, and there is certain kind of creating the, the uh, preconditions for much faster response. Because in such events, it's highly uh, important how quickly there mm-hmm. is someone with weapon in hand who is ready to intervene and stop it before much more kind of uh, massive uh, disaster is uh, caused by by the individual uh, terrorists. You think then that uh, Bennett's call for Israelis, everyone who has a license should carry a gun, you think that is helpful uh, in, in this situation? Yeah, in this situation, it's helpful. Of course, you should expect people not to use it just because some... Uh, illusion yeah. across their minds, uh, but it, it could be helpful. And it's all temporary uh, because I think that within a year or so, a real force could be created and within a few days, uh, 
the IDF, uh, Secret Service, and others can be deployed in, in the streets and behind the intelligence kind of uh, tools uh, to make sure that we will know whatever could be known. So the fact that you're talking about... And I, I, I can just, you know, Jonathan, I can just repeat it. I am confident that we have a tendency to, to look at, at things in a way that uh, over-rationalize the past and uh, get a, a each side kind of uh, digging deeper into his, its narrative, uh, over-dramatizing the present. That's what happened to us here now and probably even in regard to Ukraine and underestimate the future mm -hmm. and its development, both in terms of opportunity as well as with uh, kind of uh, sweats. And uh, I think that the most sober judgment is that Israel had been through such waves of violence for many times, including the bigger ones, but I hope and believe that we are not at the, at the opening of a third intifada. And mm -hmm. I believe that within a few months we'll, be, we'll put it behind us. Uh, let's talk about the involvement of Arab Israelis, which obviously complicates things. You were prime minister and during the October riots, and then, you know, the police lost control and, and uh, 13 Arab citizens were, were tragically killed. Here it's a different situation. What you have is huge amounts of ammunition amassed. You have criminal elements. How do you disentangle all of this? How do you begin to, 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 to fix this problem? We have to fight terror, period. And we have the tools to fight terror, and we're basically doing it uh, successfully. Mm -hmm. We should not let this phenomena of terror uh, blind ourselves from the bigger picture of what's needed in regard to our conflict. The conflict with the Palestinians is a bitter one. It's already with us for 75 years. Some might say 140 years. And uh, from day to day, it looks endless. You know, many people in Israel say, Oh, there is no way to protect the existence, the very existence of Israel if we at a certain point lose control of even a square inch of the Western. Which is not true. You, you, you can bring together into one room all the chief of staff, all the ministers of defense, all the heads of security service, all the commanders of the military commanders of the West Bank, which are alive, and you will find that 90% of them are confident that the best security, from security point of view, it's better to be able to disengage from the Palestinian, to delineate, however painfully it is, to delineate a line within the promised land, within which we'll have a majority of the settlers, all the strategic uh, interests of Israel, and uh, basically a Jewish majority for generations to come and to leave a place for a viable, demilitarized Palestinian state besides it. And it's better from security point of view. But once you realize this, you, you end up with looking at the experience of others. Is it really insolvable? No, it could be But solved. the Israeli public isn't with you, Ehud. It isn't with you. Yeah, it's not yeah. on that page. They, they are not with me today, and that's part of the roles of leaders, is to lead, not to, to hold an inner compass and a sober judgment of reality, not just whether we're going to, to judge the direction of the, of the wind at a certain point. And I, I think that if we look at other conflicts, Germany and France, just 
just eight years ago or, or from 1870 on, they slaughtered whole generations of each other. They are working together or the Balkans or Belfast. And you realize that even bleeding conflict can be brought to an end. And I said it when I ended Camp David in a disappointment. There was really no partner in Arafat at that point. I said, even if it will take 5.15, it's already 20 years, but 5.15 or even 50 years, when the time will come to have an agreement, you will need magnifying glass to see the differences between what was already on the table in Camp David or later on uh, by Erdolmet in his discussion with Abu Mazen and what actually will be ended being agreed because nothing will change. Then I can promise you that one, it is solved. Few years later, people from both sides will look at each other's eyes and won't be able to explain why the hell it took us so many years and so many people on both sides to be buried. I have to ask you, I mean, you know, you're one of the handful of people who actually know and have a deep understanding of what this job requires. Does Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, who is really kind of an accidental prime minister, resides over a government he himself calls an experiment, does he have what it takes, in your opinion? Or is it more, uh, are you more honestly relieved that Netanyahu is not prime minister? Do you think he's doing an objectively a good job, is what I'm trying to ask? Yeah, the, uh, my answer is uh, fully positive. I, I would not dare to say it more than a year ago before it came to the test. I was not sure that that's the case, but more and more I'm convinced that the man is a balanced, a, not just good will, but a person with a good judgment and clean from all these fireworks, manipulation, uh, paranoia and, and other elements that uh, emotionally and psychologically uh, wrapped uh, Netanyahu himself and his inner, the inner circle around him. Mm-hmm. They are doing good. If you count, you know, they immediately brought a budget, a great secret. A country could not be run rationally without having a budget for three years. They showed that there is nothing secret about uh, Netanyahu being a class or, or on his own. A league of his own. The yeah. world arena. There is the same kind of demand for the presence of, of uh, Bennett. Young Bennett is hardly 50 years old on the world arena as well with uh, Netanyahu. But the most important thing, we tend to forget. We have short memory about what happened here in the last three or four years under Netanyahu, especially the last two years. The men deliberately attacked the very three pillars upon which democracy is standing. The, the Israeli democracy, the Israeli court system, the Israeli law enforcement system, everything. The Israeli democracy was saved by the readiness of uh, Bennett, Lapid, and Gantz to sit together in spite of all difference and run the country in a normal way. We have been relieved from a real and uh, an apparent danger to the very democracy. Netanyahu is not other, Erdogan, not Putin, but he was very close mentally to Orban in Hungary and Kaczynski in Poland was ready to turn Israel into a nominal rather than actual democracy, just in order to save himself from a court case, which is now becoming more and more clear. He's uh, deeply into this, uh, uh, into this case. 
So you mentioned um, Gantz and Lapid and Bennett, obviously. One of the participants in the coalition is an Islamist party. And some people have been wondering how viable that will be and for how long while the government is at war with ISIS inside Israel's own borders. No, I'm certainly not saying, I don't think anybody is saying uh, that that party and that and that um, politician is aligned with ISIS. But just the politics of that, a, a government fighting jihadist terror with an Islamist party inside it, will that give an opening to the right in Israel to say this government is illegitimate? Oh, the, the Israeli white is the side of the political uh, spectrum who legitimized Mansour Abbas and the this Islamist party. When it was a, an issue of existence for Netanyahu, whether he will be able to establish a, a government or not. He invited the head of the Islamist uh, political party, uh, Mansour Abbas, to his uh, prime ministerial residence and wrapped him with, uh, with uh, promises and flattering and whatever. He legitimized the uh, presence of such a party in the Knesset. And it happens the same, you know, it's the same way I look at certain similarities, even with the ways he thought that he's fighting against the Iran turning into a threshold nuclear state and ended up to doing exactly the opposite. So in his rhetoric, he's extremely against the Islamic manipulation of Israel, but he prepared the ground to it. He asked for it. And for some reason, basically because he destroyed the trust in Israeli politics to such an extent that even when he promised uh, heaven and uh, heaven rather than hell to the Islamists, they did not believe him. And, yes, and but that was all. That was that was all in theory. Now we are in practice, and the question is: if this gets worse, if there's a war in Gaza, if there's a, a operation in in the West Bank, and there's an Islamist party that maybe will feel the pressure to to have to pull out of the coalition. I mean, how does this yeah, all yeah. hold Even up together? Even if they pull out, you need. Mm. I don't believe that the consequence will be that they have to pull out from Bennett and Gantz government and Lapid. Mm-hmm and join Netanyahu government. So yeah. basically, uh, it's uh, the more kind of normal party, Arab party to join would become the party of uh, Ayman Oda and, uh, yeah. and and the others, the, the more kind of moderate uh, Arabs. And they did not join, but they support the government in a way for, from the outside. So I don't see a reason for the uh, Islamists in Israel to prefer Netanyahu over this government. And I think that uh, the man himself, uh, he shows a lot of tolerance, a lot of patience, and very kind of good sense of of the capacity to uh, separate his Islamist background from his caring about, remove suffering, and encourage support for the Arab population. You mean Mansour Abbas, the head of the uh, yeah, United Arab yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He shows a lot of... Uh, political skill and and kind of determination to separate these two issues uh, fully. Can we move to what was dominating attention around the world and certainly in Israel before the this wave of attacks? And I'm talking obviously about Ukraine. Is Israel wrong to be on the fence, as it were? As you know, some people call it strategic ambiguity or to be 
anyway in this position where it isn't fully, it hasn't picked a side, uh, as it were. It's allowed, it's opened the door for Naftali Bennett to be play mediator. So my question to you is, is I suppose, how real do you think that mediation effort by Naftali Bennett is? And is Israel, even if there are some benefits to that mediation effort, making a big, almost moral mistake by not being fully on the side of Ukraine as it um, suffers from Russian aggression? He was involved in being in playing the role of a mediator, and I think that this initiative to mediate is very good. It serves him. I mentioned it earlier that it can put a different light of the legacy of Bibi as a great uh, statesman and so on, if he can do it so easily. And it helps Israel in a way. But having said that, I think that uh, not choosing a, a side is a grave mistake. Israel should belong with no hesitation to the side of uh, the United States and the European uh, Union, not the side of Putin, which are surrounded by Belarus, Iran, Syria, probably North Korea, with certain uh, not full support, but at least partial support from, from China. In the Israeli debate about the Israelis, the kind of security-related argument that we have this uh, Russia very close to us in Syria, we need them to coordinate about continuing our effort against the Iranian proxy operation in, in Syria and the effort to provide Hezbollah with a highly accurate uh, missile. So there is certain element in it, but it should not decide this, this question because we should understand that the fact that the Russians are coordinating with us has to do more than anything else with the fact that they have interest, Russian interest. I heard several times from uh, Putin himself in uh, four eyes meeting sometimes with someone who, who written from him some, some notes. His consideration about these two bases, uh, marine bases he has, the uh, Air Force base that he has, and there, as he uh, Putin described it to me, he said, we are connected to this dynasty, namely the Assad dynasty, for 40 years. First of all, the Soviet Union, now the Federation. I won't let my client experience what Mubarak had from uh, Obama. Hmm. That uh, mm -hmm. uh, an alliance of 40 years collapsed within three days or three weeks of uh, popular uh, resentment against the leader. My client could be secure that we will be behind him. And the Russians have their own interests, that we will not end up uh, shooting down Russian fighter jets or attacking their newest, most modern uh, air kind of air defense systems. Uh, the, the results might be embarrassing for, for Russia. So it's their own consideration, not just ours. And when we took a talk about security, the United States is a sort of our security. They finance mm -hmm. in tens of billions of dollars every decade our security infrastructure, our weapon system, our capacity to defeat any, any uh, neighbor. They are providing us with diplomatic safety net almost automatic in the Security Council. They sent in every major uh, war in the last 50 years, they sent us a heavy, massive air kind of train to provide us with the munitions and whatever we need in order to win. And the weapons that we were destroying in these big wars was always 
a Russian uh, weapons. So I don't think that we should have any hesitation. But I have to add one point, which has to do with the moral high ground. Israel should be, both politically and morally, be the first country on earth to be interested in a world order, whether it is inconceivable, unthinkable, to see a, a certain um, state decide to eliminate the existence of another sovereign state member of the UN as part of its interest just because he can do it. We should be the first to stand against it. And more than it, it was Martin Luther King, probably Dante Alighieri originally, who said that the hottest place in hell should be kept for those who stood on the sideline in a moment where a moral decision was needed. No other people stands more clearly exactly at this kind of point uh, under a need to make a decision, and we have to make it. It's not too late now. But, last remark, we have to understand what we cannot do. For example, we cannot give them Iron Dome for two reasons. We don't have enough to protect Israel. We don't have enough batteries and for sure not enough uh, interceptors. The American Congress, not the Russian Duma, the American Congress just approved $1 billion to establish production line for interceptors of Iron Dome in order to be able to protect Israel against Hezbollah that might be uh, attacking when a major clash with Iran happens or, or for some other reason. So, Ukraine, for those who did not realize, is 30 times bigger than Israel. So if we need, let's say, 20 or 25 uh, batteries to protect, they might need 500 of them. It will be probably produced over the next uh, generation or, or decade enough. So it's not relevant. We cannot uh, do it. Now, you have been pretty vocal in saying that the Israeli government and the U.S. administration at that has no operative plan in place to attack Iran. I think that's what we talked about last time we met uh, in the studio when we were still talking in Hebrew. <laughs> do you, is anyone listening to you? Do, do, do you feel that the, that there something is shifting in that understanding in the security and defense echelon in Israel and the government? Uh, you have to, uh, to look at it uh, into the past and into the future. About the past, I think that is wide agreement uh, that uh, uh, you know, when we ask ourselves, how comes that we cannot ask them, demand from the American longer and stronger uh, uh, kind of agreement? That's basically the result of the fact that uh, Netanyahu and Trump made the coordinated steps to enable the Iranians to move forward toward the threshold set without breaking the agreement because they argued uh, it's the Americans who, who broke it. And it is clear, I think that out of kind of... Uh, cautiousness, Bennett only hints to it. He doesn't make it a major point. But he mentioned more than once, and ben, uh, Gantz probably didn't mention, but uh, Lapid mentioned it several times, that it was a grand negligence of Netanyahu and Trump not to prepare a plan B when you are launching this kind of uh, radical step of leaving, leaving the agreement where, where the rest stayed there and the agreement is still there and allow the, the Iranians to move forward. That at least had to cause America and Israel to prepare independently a plan B, surgical, kinetic operation that can 
break or delay the Iranian nuclear military program by several years. And they didn't. It seems that they didn't. And I, I, I'm not sure that uh, either the United States or Israel uh, now has such a plan. And uh, that uh, makes the whole question a little bit subtle. When Israeli leaders are telling you and the, uh, and the public, uh, we have the capability to act in Iran. So technically, it's an accurate sentence. If the government will order the IDF to send airplanes and attack certain installations in Iran, being the port of Bandar Abbas or some uh, other, or even, even some uh, uh, nuclear site, the Air Force will take it and will do it. And it will cause certain damage. But to think the kind of operation that we planned decade ago against the Iranian uh, nuclear effort was always focused on something very concrete. If the surgical operation cannot delay the Iranian military nuclear program by, let's say, two, three or five years, it might backfire at you. It might legitimate Iran to move in the open toward the nuclear uh, power. They will basically say, you know, under your uh, umbrella, you, the Americans who pretend to have an agreement with us, your uh, strongest ally in the Middle East, who is, according to the whole world, a nuclear power for two generations now, they decided to attack our uh, peaceful, as they will call it, a nuclear event. And that threat by a nuclear power, namely Israel, is compelling us to turn nuclear, even if you, the whole world, will protest. Mm -hmm. So it's not effective. And for sure, if you don't even have such a plan that can delay them by uh, two years. So we basically, 10 years ago, said that there are three preconditions for considering an operation. One is that the presence of viable military surgical operation that can reach this objective of delay by two, three, or four years, Secondly, an international legitimacy for such an operation. And thirdly, what we call necessity. If you don't do it now, you might not be able to do it next year. Mm -hmm. And only these three elements together might justify an operation. Once there will be an agreement, there is no agreement until now, but once there will be agreement right now, it will be probably a bad agreement as a result of the grand negligence of Netanyahu and Trump. But... Mm -hmm. Uh, even if it's a bad agreement, it will be effect once it is signed, and it will clearly limit our legitimacy to act against Iran, especially if we don't have a convincing plan that can delay them by years. We have mm -hmm. to understand the whole effort to block Iran nuclear military program is a kind of contest between the longevity of this regime and mm -hmm. the success of this uh, plan, because we don't have a quarrel. The world don't have a quarrel with the Iranian people. It's only with these Ayatollahs. The assumption is that if the Ayatollahs will fall down before Iran will turn nuclear, they will never turn nuclear. But if they will turn nuclear and will stay in power, that protects them against any possibility uh, of someone intervening in their internal issues, and it will uh, destroy the whole world paradigm of a nuclear proliferation kind of blocking. The whole NPT regime will collapse. So do because we have... Tur 
Turkey will immediately turn nuclear. I remember David Urlu told me, what choice we have? If Iran turns yeah. nuclear, Turkey will have to turn nuclear. Egypt will follow and, and Saudi Arabia will come even ahead of them. And by then, the countdown to the real threat, which is not a nuclear weapon in the hands of a responsible regime, but in the end of terrorists, might still start. The countdown to all the real threat, which is nuclear devices in the hands of terror, it might take 20 years or 10 years, I don't know, but this countdown might start. That's the real threat. What is not a threat? Israel is led to believe, by Netanyahu mainly, that we are living on the verge of an apocalypse. If Iran turns nuclear, we are at an existential, immediate existential threat. They might drop it on our heads. That's not true. Mm-hmm. The same way the North Korea never considered dropping a bomb on South Korea, on Japan, on the Americans, in Guam. They do it in order to protect their own survivability of the regime and in order to give them more flexibility in maneuvering in their neighborhood. The reason they don't consider to drop it, they don't. They are extremists, but they are not stupid. They don't want to get back to the Stone Age. The same applies to the Ayatollah. They are extremists. They are not stupid. They don't want to turn back into the Stone Age. It's just about protecting their survivability in power. It's about correcting something that kind of kind of intimidate them or, or humiliate them. That every neighbor around has a nuclear power, and somehow the great uh, Iranian civilization, civilization, cannot have a nuclear bomb. Who, who is the one who... So the, who optimal thing, would, the optimal thing to hope for is that we manage to delay this as much as possible until there's a regime change. If I understand from you, that is, yeah. that is basically yeah, the plan. Yeah, that's uh, the objective of the whole world. Okay. The whole world thinks in those terms. Mm-hmm. And we have to realize that if there will be an agreement, it probably won't be an agreement uh, because of Ukraine and other kind of side effects. But if there will be an agreement, it will limit us. It probably uh, will make the, the kind of plan B that we have to prepare much more complicated and delayed. And we cannot avoid under this uh, arrangement Iran from turning into threshold state. Threshold mm-hmm. means that they have... Uh, such technologies and amount of military-grade nuclear material that you can't know and you cannot prevent them from turning nuclear at the moment they choose to do it. And you know, in the eyes of the world, uh, nominally even Israel is a a threshold state, but everyone believes that Israel Israel is a nuclear power. So that's very risky. So we have to think. Even a bad agreement, unfortunately, is better than no agreement at all. Mm-hmm. If we want to delay them, the agreement delays them in a certain way, but cannot block them from turning uh, tra- into threshold. And our leading interest is to do the opposite of what Netanyahu uh, did with Obama, to keep very close coordination with the Americans behind closed door, to make sure that we increase the coordination of our intelligence bodies to know what happens, that we coordinate in terms of uh, diplomacy and in terms of operational steps that might be able to take underneath the way down. And that America will back Israeli Plan B for just a worst-case contingency by providing us with certain means that we cannot produce, that will enable Israeli to take under certain uh, situation and independent operation. 
All these lead to the same direction. Coordinate with the United States. Don't embarrass them. Don't question their judgment, their will. They want the same. They are responsible for what they have to do, and they don't see a viable options through the binoculars of their American interests. Can I ask one very last thing, just very personal to you, Ehud Barak, which is you've yeah. got brilliant analysis and views of all these things, but you're now here in London, you're on business, you're an individual now, private citizen. Do you not miss being the decision maker? No, I, I was the decision maker in every, all, every possible position in Israel, you know. A, so I uh, was um, head of the special forces, and then head of intelligence, then head of the uh, chief of staff, the head of the army, then the prime minister, minister of defense, and on the way was minister of interior, minister of foreign affairs, and uh, half a dozen other ministries for a very short period. So I'm, uh, and I have a lot of curiosity about so many other fields that I had to leave behind because of the demands of mission. So I, I will never have a dull moment in this round, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, I don't miss it. And a, a friend, you know, a friend told me once, uh, Eud, you, you will be called back to action when bodies will be, uh, floating on the uh, water of the Yarkon River. Not bodies of Arab from the West Bank or from Israeli Arab, but bodies of Jews uh, killed by Jews. I told him, thank you very much. Uh, don't let the bodies float and don't call me to back to office. And I'm proud of what I've done. I never blamed anyone. I know the reality that I made the decisions. I, I've no one to blame whether it succeeded or not. And I'm not worried about what history will uh, tell about my uh, legacy. And for sure, not uh, worried by what uh, present kind of uh, militants uh, under the uh, influence of the great dear leader uh, are sending to me on the Twitter. <laughs> and which you're very active on. Um, Eud, thank you so much for talking to us. Really, it was such a, such a remarkable and interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Well, that was, I think, a really fascinating encounter. He remains, I mean, I think he's 80 years old or his 80th year. He's just celebrated his 80th birthday. 80th birthday. I mean, people couldn't see this. He doesn't look 80. He doesn't no. sound or act 80. No. He's right on it. He's incredibly sharp. Um I thought, you know, some of that stuff about one day we are going to make peace here and people will think, what took us so long? You know, that was a little bit visionary. And I think one of the criticisms of him in the Camp David period was he couldn't talk like that. He couldn't talk in a big picture visionary way that, for example, Yitzhak Rabin had done and lead his nation to peace. So I thought that was very, uh, you know, welcome to hear him in that mode. But I do think he, I don't, well, you'll tell me, but it felt like he was making some news there with some of what he was talking about, about, you know, a new force being required to deal with this current wave, yeah. uh, talking about uh, Iran, his assessment of where Iran is. I mean, there was mm -hmm. quite a lot of news in there. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the fact that he talked about Israel being right now in a state of uh, emergency. Um, he has always been a harsh critic of Netanyahu, never a fan, even though he used to be his defense minister, as we all remember. But, you know, saying that uh, Netanyahu was a uh, danger to Israeli democracy what he said about Israel have 
needing to have a much more clear voice on the Ukrainian uh, story was incredibly interesting. And what he said about Iran was, you know, news to me in the sense that he said, basically, first of all, he talked about Iran already as a threshold state, but also saying we need to just be in this and delay as much as possible, delay the nuclear program as much as possible until there's a regime change. You know, these are really interesting things. And he is really one of the smartest uh, people around. His late last uh, attempt at Israeli politics didn't work out so well, but he's still incredibly uh, sharp analyst, as you say. Of what is so the things I thought were, because it's Israeli politics, the fact that he's 80 does not rule out a comeback, which nope. it would in any, nope. <laughs> anywhere else. Hey, it one. doesn't in the United States either, as we yeah. kind of seem to re- discover these days. That is right. I mean, late 70s is the threshold, so 80s is the new 70s when it comes to Israel. <laughs> I, on Netanyahu, I find the relationship between the two of them fascinating. Um, yep. you know, Remember Barak, one th- of them, he was Barak was Netanyahu's commanding yep. officer. So mm-hmm. we are, we're saying at the same time. So there's that dynamic. And as you said, they roles reversed because Barak served as his defense minister under Netanyahu. And they were the two who were really wrestling with that decision about whether to take action on Iran. Mm-hmm. The reporting at the time said that Barak was with Bibi on being you know, bellicose and kinetic, right. to use right. the word he used. And yet, in the end, you know, the, the military chiefs and others were very... Because un- no one reticent. else was on board, yes. no, Which is an amazing idea, again, that the prime minister mm-hmm. and defence minister is not enough in Israel. You have mm-hmm. to have other people with you to make it viable. I find their relationship endlessly intriguing. The praise he gave to Naftali Bennett... I think your sceptical ear found that to be just another way of dissing Netanyahu. To me, it was interesting, you know, the 80-year-old praising the 50-year-old and somebody from the left traditionally praising someone from the right. I, I, I thought that was arresting too. So, as always, um, Ehud Barak is worth listening to. He's um, He's been a man at the centre, as he told us. He's been sort of in the, a decision-maker for decades. And so really interesting to hear mm-hmm. him speak about all that, including the stuff about Ukraine, and he was talking about Naftali Bennett's shuttle diplomacy. Can you give us an update on where we're at with that? Well, first of all, look, I mean, we opened our uh, conversation, Jonathan, with talking about the terror wave in Israel. What is important to understand is that this is now the focus of Naftali Bennett, and it has to be. He needs to, what he tried to be, right, this kind of the optics of the global leader shuttling between uh, um, uh, Zelensky and Putin, he can't do that anymore. Like, it's not that anyone declared that the media, the Israeli uh, mediating uh, efforts are over, but they are effectively over because now he has to appear like a leader that the only thing he cares about is dealing with this uh, terror wave. And by the way, the, the, the sad thing is, besides the tragedy of what is going on, this has actually been a, a, a diplomatic great week for Israel, right? Israel managed to bring into the desert, right, into Sdeboker, uh, the, the house of Ben-Gurion, the first Israeli prime minister, to bring in four, even he as a visionary, I don't know if could have imagined, four foreign ministers from uh, Arab states, plus the American foreign, uh, the, the American secretary of state, and obviously Israeli foreign minister Yair Lapid, to a summit that was supposed to be the focus of this week of discussing regional cooperation of, of Iran issues like that. Of course, that is not the case because uh, the, 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 the old Middle East uh, had to rear its ugly head, unfortunately, this week. It's um, slightly that Godfather 3 line comes back again. Every <laughs> time I think I'm out, it pulls yeah. me back in. And this really, I agree, the optics of that, it was one of those split screen weeks where there was the footage of the summit in the Negev and then instantly giving way to the very familiar optics of the aftermath of a terror attack. So it's quite true there isn't that um, 
that optimism. I hadn't realized that point about the focus. It's so interesting because what had been a plus for Naftali Bennett to be seen getting on and off flights in, in Moscow and elsewhere, suddenly he has to be on the ground in Tel Aviv, in Jerusalem. Otherwise, he's, um, well, he'll be judged and he will be judged entirely by how this government handles it all. Um, our normal business does continue. Uh, does. I have a chutzpah award to hand out. I have a funny feeling she may be a previous winner. Um, yes, she, she was. Which is a little bit, you know, like those sort of like Jodie Foster at the Academy Awards, <laughs> you know, getting Best Actress twice. We doff our cap to the Fox News host, Lara Logan, who appeared on a show actually on a different uh, uh, program, different channel, something with the uh, you know QAnon supporting uh, show online, andweknow.com is the name of this sort of fringe uh, broadcast, which is, tells you lots, actually, about the mindset. Apparently, they support QAnon. Let's share with people what Lara Logan said online. Darwin, I mean, when I found out, does anyone know when who employed Darwin, where Darwinism comes from? Uh, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, look it up. The yeah. Rothschilds. Yeah. It yeah. goes right back to 10 Downing Street. All the way. And the same people who employed Darwin Mm -hmm. And that's when Darwin, you know, wrote his theory of evolution and so on and so on. And right. I'm not saying that none of that is true. Right. I'm just saying Darwin was hired by someone mm -hmm. to come up with a theory. I mean, you've got to almost admire the creativity <laughs> of this because, you know, there was I, there was once that guy, I think, in, uh, in D.C. on a D.C. TV channel who blamed bad weather, snow, on the Rothschilds. And we've, of course, had... Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene blaming, you know, the Jewish space laser for the wild uh, fires in California. Th this to me came we're, from we're nowhere. Lucky, you know. it's, we're lucky we have the gaspacho police to deal with Oh, yeah. The Jewish, <laughs> to the Jewish space in. laser then. <laughs> to the gaspacho can go in and deal with that. But this, <laughs> I mean, going back to the 19th century and who employed Darwin, it was the Rothschilds. I mean, this, as I say, there's almost something sort of floridly creative about yes. going back there. See, you're, being, you're said, being English and polite. It's just, I mean, there's something so crazy about being able to connect Jews to everything. It's just... To everything. And it's people who only ever think about Jews one way or another. Um, you know, there was a bit more of uh, of that. Well, in fact, anyway, I can go on about that. Um, so yes, Laura Logan, worthy winner of Chutzpah of the Week Award for her suggestion that evolution itself maybe down to the house of Rothschilds <laughs> and the Jews. We laugh because what's the alternative? Exactly. Um, what can we do? It's what we do, right? It's what we do. So another one. Um, so I, you know, if we were just uh, following the trend here on Unholy, we would say that obviously chutzpah of the week goes to Will Smith uh, for uh, reminding us what toxic masculinity looks like. We talked about this a lot with a conversation with Scott Galloway, um, mm. especially since he took all the focus and, and this ceremony that was so important for women in Hollywood. Um, but, uh, and if we're doing mensch, uh, again, as a cliche, then we would give it to uh, Lady Gaga and the way she uh, uh, held herself with Liza Minnelli on stage. But we tried to be a little bit original in our thinking, just a little bit, stay in the Oscar realm. And we decided to, I decided to, or you decided to, one of us, to give the award, uh, Mensch Award, to the best host of the Oscars ever. I think we can agree on this. Billy Crystal. I mean, I'm no with offense, you on this. No offense to Bob Hope, who did it more times than Billy, even more times than Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal hosted the Oscars nine times. And I think that he just did it in 
perfect way of, of you know, being funny, being a little bit rude occasionally, never into the, the area that Chris Rock would uh, would walk in, tread in, but just, just a perfect Oscar host. What can we say about him? This is my ninth time, ninth time hosting the Oscars. <laughs> so tonight, just call me Warhorse. We're here at the beautiful Chapter 11 Theater. to celebrate a Hollywood tradition that not only creates memories for the ages, but also breeds resentments that last a lifetime. I agree completely. It's a nostalgist's argument, this. But all that the funny thing was, all this Will Smith thing and Chris Rock did make me think, well, this didn't happen back when Bill, Billy Crystal was uh, presenting the Oscars. Then I read this piece um, in the New York Times by Ross Duthat, the conservative columnist there, who's very, very good. And he wrote a whole piece about how the movies don't count the way they used to. Uh, and he said, you know, what can be done? This was written before the Oscars, before the Will Smith thing happened. And he said, you know, there's always people saying, how can we revive the movies and Hollywood? And somebody at the back will always say, bring back Billy Crystal to host the Oscars. <laughs> and as, as I read it, I thought, but that was exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> so I'm now, that, I'm now that person who is, you know, predicted and predictable uh, by a New York Times columnist, because that's exactly what I thought when I saw all this row. I thought, Yelling. yeah, bring, bring back Billy Crystal. He was the business. So instead of getting the nod from the Academy, he does get a mensch of the week. Exactly. Um, we're okay with bringing back Catherine Hepburn too as well, but we're, that would be a little bit more difficult. So. That would be harder. Um, but yeah, for now, we would have Billy Crystal do it every year. Why not? <laughs> Nine was too few. Um, and we would uh, say every time we're having what he's having. Um, so that would be that would be our choice. Um, if you have enjoyed this edition of Unholy, please do rate or review or tell your friends about it and get them listening. Um, I think lots of you are doing that, so that's very good. We also encourage your emails to unholy at keshet-tv.com. Um, so, yeah, please do send us your love and affection and questions and thoughts uh, to that email address. Yonit, who do we want to thank? We want to thank uh, Rom Atik and uh, Omer Primat and Irad Eshel. And we were, I don't know, a little bit too 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 much in agreement this week. I'm kind of worried about us. Maybe some of, one of us is coming down with something. I think we'll go back to arguing next week. Maybe. Well, we can do that. I mean, you, you've been channeling your inner freedom. My inner levy has been channeled too. <laughs> um, so yeah, maybe something's happening here. No, maybe that's not a good thing. Let's just revert to what we'll we used to be. We'll work on it. We'll work on it. See you next week. See ya. <laughs> 